1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Thanks so much, Lily. Please do keep that passage open, and there's an outline uh, on the inside of your sheet. Uh, and welcome to the, to the older grub groupers. I hope you're enjoying being with us this morning. And there's a sheet for you as well. hope you can follow on with uh, what I'm saying. Question for today. What is so wrong about false teaching? What is so wrong about false teaching? Throughout our series in the book of 1 Timothy, we've been seeing that the big threat to the church Paul's writing to is falsehood. What Paul calls in chapter 1 a different gospel being taught in the church, perhaps by some of the elders. But it's worth asking, what exactly is so wrong with that? And why is Paul so keen for this false teaching to be stamped out? From our modern perspective, it all comes across as a bit suspicious, doesn't it? Surely we might think the presence of different views and different opinions is something to be celebrated. A welcome bit of religious diversity. Can't we just live and let live? After all, we're told repeatedly that we mustn't judge people for their beliefs or shame people for their lifestyles. Isn't what Paul is doing remarkably intolerant? And isn't it a bit sinister that Paul wants to stamp it out so that only his gospel gets taught in the church? Well, that's certainly the view of some people. People like the scholar Bart Ehrman, who has lamented the loss of some of these alternative forms of Christianity, as he puts it. He, he says, quote, There were lots of early Christian groups. They all claimed to be right, and the group that won out did not represent the teachings of Jesus. The victorious group called itself orthodox, but it was not the original form of Christianity, and it won its victory only after many hard-fought battles. End quote. I should note that Ehrman's claims there about it not being the teachings of Jesus and all the rest of it rest on some pretty shaky historical reconstruction, but is that the dynamic we're seeing in 1 Timothy? A vicious attempt by a power-hungry man to stamp out the beautiful diversity of the early church. Perhaps the question becomes sharper when we see some of the content of the false teaching that Paul is particularly combating here. As Lily was reading, we've just heard that it involved abstaining from marriage, and abstaining from certain foods. And we might think, is that it? Is that really such a big deal? In our world of self-indulgence and promiscuity and gluttony, does a vow of chastity and a diet really rank highly on the list of evils that beset our worlds? That's what we're going to be exploring today. What exactly is so wrong about false teaching? But as well as that, we need to remember the context. Paul's just been giving Timothy this wonderful picture of what the church is. It's the pillar and foundation of the truth, the household of the living God, which is given the awesome responsibility and privilege of protecting and displaying the gospel in the world. 
And the church is invited into a way of life, a pattern of godliness revealed and enabled by Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. We saw then how it was powerful, outward-looking, joyful, hopeful way of life. A way of life which could be profoundly attractive to those outside. And although our translations don't include it, verse 1 of chapter 4 starts with the word but in Greek. In other words, what we're going to see here is that the, uh, the, in the false teaching is a total contrast with that powerful, outward-looking, joyful, hopeful, attractive way of life. So as well as seeing the wrongness of false teaching, we're also going to see the goodness of gospel living. And when we see those things side by side, we will, I think, totally understand why Paul wanted this false teaching to be stopped in the church and the true gospel proclaimed. Uh, let's dive in then as we first consider the wrongness of false teaching. The first thing we've got to note about this false teaching is that it comes as no surprise whatsoever to Paul. Look at verse 1 where he says the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul that people abandoning the true gospel and turning to a different message is a normal and expected feature of life in the church age. That's what the phrase later times means, I think. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see the phrase the last days. I think it means the same thing here. Uh, the, the time in between Jesus' ascension, his, his sort of first coming, and his coming again, his final revelation. In this period, called the last days, because it's the final stage in God's salvation plan, Paul says false teachers are going to turn up. They're going to arise. They're going to deceive people. If you're wondering, by the way, how the Spirit has said that to Paul, he could be referring to a private revelation, but he could equally be saying that the Spirit-inspired scriptures say exactly this. Jesus, for example, himself says this is going to happen in Matthew 24, verse 23. And that doesn't mean it's sad. It's not sad. It doesn't mean it's not shocking. But Paul doesn't want us to be too unsettled when it happens. Throughout church history, lots of false teaching has come and gone, and it's often used by opponents of Christianity, like people like Bart Ehrman, to try and discredit the gospel. Look, you all disagree with each other. Everyone teaches different things. There's never been this sort of single, settled message of Jesus, so clearly there's no real stable truth here at all. Perhaps you've heard people say that. But Paul says, no, you shouldn't be unsettled by that. This is what we should expect. There will always be challenges to the true gospel. But just because it's not a surprise, it doesn't mean it's not a problem. So what is the issue? What is so wrong about false teaching? Well, first, Paul invites us to consider the source. Look at verse 1 again. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. See there, Paul gives us two sources for this false teaching, two places this teaching comes from, a spiritual source and a human source. Consider with me the spiritual source first. Paul straightforwardly tells us this teaching is demonic. It comes from deceiving spirits and demons. The Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual realm, that there are creatures that we cannot see, some of which serve God and want to do us good, others of which rebel against God and want to do us harm. Now, we don't, want to be, we don't need to be afraid of those things. We saw last week that Jesus has total control over those beings, that he's been raised above them all. 
but we just need to be aware that they continue to have an influence in our world, which should drive us to pray, shouldn't it, and depend on the God who is in charge of that entire realm. But I want us to stop and notice the shock in these verses. What are these demons, these deceiving spirits, causing people to do? Ideas might come into our head of sort of demonic possession, of people being driven insane or, or spurred on to do wild and crazy things of excess and debauchery. Well, not here. Here, the demonic teaching is about saying no to marriage and saying no to certain foods. From the outside, it might look upstanding and self-controlled and disciplined and even somewhat morally heroic. But looks can be deceiving. And Paul's point is that something which deviates from the truth of the gospel, no matter how appealing and respectable it looks from the outside, comes not from the true God, but from deceiving spirits. And so we must be discerning. Just because something seems to be vaguely moral and not obviously outrageously sinful, it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's from God. There's plenty of implications to that, which perhaps we can talk about over coffee or at growth groups. But we'll move on for now to see, as well as the spiritual source, the human source of this teaching. The teaching comes, verse 2, through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Strong words, aren't they? Uh, we'll see in a moment, Paul has very good reasons to speak so strongly. Uh, what do we learn about the human teachers of this falsehood? We learn that they've begun to take on the character of the demons themselves. We're clearly reminded, I think, of Jesus' words to the Pharisees and teachers of the law in his day. Another group of outwardly moral and respectable and upstanding and apparently self-controlled and disciplined people. Look at what Jesus said to them in John 8:44, which is on the screen where he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Or again, in Matthew 23, 15, when he says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. See the similar language there, 1 Timothy 4, and the connection with the devil. The father of lies begets liars and begets hypocrites. A hypocrite is uh, someone who seems to be one thing on the outside, but on the inside is something very different. And that's what Paul is saying about these false teachers. They seem outwardly respectable, moral, upright, self-controlled. But on the inside, their consciences, verse 2, have been seared as with a hot iron. Our consciences are a God-given gift to help us distinguish right from wrong. Those little twinges of guilt or shame when we do something wrong are part of God's good design. They're part of God's common grace to limit sin and damage in our lives and in the world. But these false teachers' consciences have been cauterized. It's like they feel nothing. They're numb. Again, we're reminded of Jesus' words to the Pharisees that they are whitewashed tombs. They look clean and shiny on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. And so no matter how ethical and upright they seem, there's something cold and deadly underneath. We see that in the Pharisees who assumed a position of moral superiority over others, 
but that just revealed a heart full of pride, pride that would eventually lead them to kill Jesus for daring to suggest that he was the good shepherd of Israel and not them. And we can see that same pride here. Notice, uh, this is very important, that it's not just that they themselves are abstaining from marriage and certain foods. That might not be so bad. We'll come back to that in a minute. It's that verse 3, they are forbidding others to do the same. They are arrogantly assuming the role of the arbiters of right and wrong over against what God has said. It's not just that they can't tell the difference between good and evil for themselves. It's that they're redefining good and evil for other people. They're saying, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't eat these foods. It's bad for you. And remember, that is the very sin of Adam and Eve, the very temptation of the serpent right at the beginning, that we don't need God to tell us good and evil. We can choose and define it for ourselves. That's the source. That's where it comes from. So what's the result of this false teaching? What does it lead to? Let me show you two things. It denies the creation and it denies the gospel. Firstly, it denies the creation. Look at verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received from, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Paul says marriage and food are things that God created for the good and the enjoyment of the human race. We'll see more of that in the second part of the talk. But the point is that forbidding people to partake in something that God has created is calling something bad that God calls good. Do you see that? It's a denial of the goodness and generosity of the creator God and of the created world that he has made. And that created world, that created order, it really matters to God and it should matter to us. The Christian faith is not about escaping creatureliness in order to exist in some super spiritual realm of detachment from the world. No, that is not Christianity. Paul has already had to teach this church that the created order, as designed and revealed by God in the beginning, is very good. That created order still stands as the way that, for example, men and women are meant to relate to each other and to flourish in God's world. And in the church, the new humanity of God, God's recreated family, that order is meant to be rediscovered and displayed and enjoyed. The Bible abounds with language about the goodness and joy of creation, the goodness of food and drink and relationships and marriage and sex. All these things point back to a generous and good God who delights to provide good things for his children to enjoy. But this teaching denies all of that. It denies the goodness of God. It denies even the created order because it's an attempt to remake the world in our own image, under our own design, our own rules, and a world made in our image. Think about that. What a miserable and stingy place that would be, wouldn't it? This super spiritual forbidding of the good things of earth is not godly. Now, there's a real irony here because it's possible and likely that the false teachers were using the Bible to try and motivate some of this behavior. You see, under the Old Covenant, there were laws about what food the Israelites could and couldn't eat. And there were times when people were told to abstain from sex for specific reasons. Particularly, the priests had to do this from time to time. And so it could be that the false teachers were trying to persuade people to emulate the holiness of the old covenant priests in some kind of twisted fashion. 
But the point is that those temporary restrictions in the Old Covenant were never intended to deny that marriage and food were good things. And now that Jesus has come, those temporary restrictions have been lifted. And so we see that as well as denying the creation, this false teaching denies the gospel. We can't be completely sure, but it definitely seems like the teaching was intended to use this abstinence from marriage and food as a means to establish righteousness and holiness and godliness. Remember the language of the mystery of godliness from last week might have been the false teacher's motto. We have discovered the secret key to godliness. We've delved back into the Bible for you and we've found it. Here it is. It was hidden there all along. We've revealed it. Here is the secret to right relationship with God. Just don't get married and avoid these foods and God will be pleased with you. And we can't be completely sure that's what they were saying, but they certainly wouldn't be the first to say something like that. Again, there's precedent in the Pharisees who are obsessed with ritual cleanliness and fasting, who made up their own rules to try and stay on the right side of the law and in God's good books, who called Jesus, remember, a drunkard and a glutton because he didn't fast like they did and he ate with sinners. And that dynamic has cropped up again and again, as Paul said it would, in the history of the church. People attempting to make progress in the spiritual realm by using the things of the earthly realm. Now, sometimes that's in the form of strict rules and self-denial, like here, like in the early monastic orders. At other times, it's gone the other way. And people have been encouraged to indulge in the things of earth in the ways that Bible, the Bible really does forbid in order to transcend or escape the creation. But whichever way this goes, whether it ends up in sort of legalism or licentiousness, it's not the gospel. As we saw last week, the, the mystery of godliness which has truly been revealed is all about Jesus, about him coming down to us, taking on flesh, bearing our sin, giving us grace. We don't work our way up to him. He graciously comes down to us. And so any teaching that says we can improve our standing before God with rules about the use of the things of earth is a denial of Jesus Christ. Paul says in another letter in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and we're no better if we do. Godliness is about Jesus, it's not about us. Salvation is about him coming down on us, working our way up. So do you see how this teaching, it denies the goodness of creation and denies the gospel of Jesus. So think, for me for, think with me for a moment. What would it look like for a church to embrace this teaching? What kind of church would it be? What would we see? Well, we'd see exactly what we've been seeing throughout this letter and what we're going to see in the second half. We've seen the church, we see the church ripped apart in quarreling and arrogance as each member looks down on the other because of what they eat or how they live their lives. We're seeing the church turned inwards, as chapter 6 says, in envy and strife and suspicion and friction. Instead of enjoying freely the good things of earth, they have turned these things into weapons for a civil war within the family of God. The church has become a place of pride, despair, comparison, guilt. The church that's meant to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, which is meant to display the goodness and joy and grace of the gospel to a watching world. Yet who would want to be a part of this church? Who'd want to be a part of a church like this? Here is the real wrongness of false teaching. It makes the gospel of Jesus look like bad news. 
And so let's turn from this, this sad perversion of the Christian faith, to see the joy of the truth. Let's think with Paul about the goodness of gospel living. Paul says a very interesting thing in verse 3. He says, let's look at the end of that. He says, they forbid, let's look at the beginning. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by who? Those who believe and who know the truth. Do you see what he's saying there? Paul is saying that it's those who believe and know the truth that will receive the good things of earth with thanksgiving. In other words, it's the eyes of faith the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ that will be able to see and use the things of this world properly. Remember, remember what Paul has just said, that the, the mystery of godliness, the way of life which pleases God and which God approves of is revealed in Jesus. And so if we understand the gospel, if we grasp the mystery of godliness, if we trust in Jesus, that will give us the right perspective and outlook on the whole of our lives. As C.S. Lewis famously once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So how do we see the things of earth from a Christian perspective? Let's dive in uh, to the second half of the passage and we'll see three dynamics of the Christian life well lived. Three implications of the revelation of the mystery of godliness in how we relate to the stuff around us, how we use the things of earth. Firstly, Thankfulness. Thankfulness is mentioned twice in these verses. Look at verse 3 again. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Why does Paul measure on thanksgiving in these verses? Is he just trying to get us to remember to say grace before every meal? Not a bad thing. But remember that the focus of his letter has been on God our Savior. He's told us, as Danny reminded us, that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that Jesus has been preached among the nations and believed on in the world. You see, God, our God, is all about grace. He's about salvation. That's the heart of the gospel, that God in Jesus has generously given us what we don't deserve. So the only natural response to that is thankfulness. And the point is that a heart that has been schooled in the gift of the gospel will see gift wherever it looks. Let me say that again. A heart schooled in the gift of the gospel will see gift everywhere it looks. We've all met, I suspect, entitled people. People who think that there's something special. who think they're amazing and, and think the world owes them a favor. And the thing that unites all entitled people is that they're all miserable. Because they never feel as though they have enough. They always want more. They can't be thankful for what they've been given because they think they're just getting what they deserve and frankly just have a bit more really. But if we, like Paul, confess ourselves to be the worst of sinners, then we will understand that every good thing in this world is a gift of simply unbelievable generosity. If we realize that our destiny before Christ came was to be under the judgment of hell for all eternity... And now we're saved and we're forgiven 
and we're adopted into God's family, and we're brought into, into God's household, and we're given the hope of the new creation. And then on top of that, we learn that there's this thing called chocolate ice cream. It just feels ridiculous, doesn't it? We ought to be overwhelmed with thankfulness for God. And we need to see that our God has made an astonishingly abundant creation. The students were learning about this apparently at NYC. If, you, if I say the word fecundity, then all the students go, oh, yeah, I know about fecundity. I don't know. Ask them. Um, but the point is it's a world which teems with life of all different kinds, a thousand different foods to delight our palates, a million different landscapes to see and enjoy the fruitfulness of the changing seasons. It's a world full of both natural beauty and human beauty, art and music and science and sports, curling and literature, the glorious diversity of different cultures, uh, the rich depths of relationships, romance, family, friendship. See, we have a God who delights in generous abundance and we ought to see it and enjoy it, and be thankful. And we'll learn more about in chapter 6 about how that thankfulness can guard us against all kinds of temptations. Now, of course, life isn't all giggles and unicorns. There are hard and sad things in this world too, aren't there? We're not yet in the new creation, of course. But a firm grasp on the gospel ought to help us see that the world God made is full of gift. It is full of his generosity full of his grace, and therefore, it ought to be full of his glory. This thankfulness, this glad appreciation of God's creative kindness is what creation is for. Paul goes so far as to say that nothing that God made is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. You remember that in the, in the beginning, God made a world which he said was very good, and he gave it to Adam and Eve with the instruction to eat from any tree, from the abundance of trees in the garden, bar one, to enjoy its fruit and to enjoy good relationship with him by acknowledging him as the good and generous creator of all. Thanksgiving is the goal. That's the point of all of this. The glory of God is the goal of all creation, and it's the joy, it should be the joy of all his creatures. Do you remember Bart Ehrman at the beginning of this talk? I found another quote from him. I have such a fantastic life that I feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude for it. But I don't have anyone to express my gratitude to. There is a void deep inside me, a void of wanting someone to thank, and I don't see any plausible way of filling it. Do you see how the two quotes are related? Ehrman has rejected the gospel of Jesus as a second-century power play, but he has therefore robbed himself of the grace of the gospel, of relationship with the living God, of the dynamic of thankfulness which he, has made, which he was made for and which his heart craves. He's still alive. Pray for him. The gospel makes every part of life a theatre of gratitude. Now, there are plenty of implications of this, but here's one. The growth groups were thinking a few weeks ago about uh, the Bible and technology. And we considered that our modern world is a place which is largely devoted to the pursuit of efficiency. We want the fastest broadband, the most productive workers, the most optimal use of our time, the most streamlined economy. And I guess there's some good to all of that. But a potential result of that drive for efficiency and productivity is we begin to look down on people and look down on activities that might seem a little bit less productive. There are good things in this world that we cannot tick off from a to-do list, that we cannot optimize for, that there is no app for, 
things like art and creativity, things like play and friendship, things like rest, things that take time and are not efficient and are not particularly productive. But do we face the temptation when we look over, perhaps at other people in our church, who are enjoying those things and thanking God for them, who have different spending habits and hobbies and life decisions that we do, do we think, well, I wouldn't do that. It's a bit of a waste of time, isn't it? It's a bit of a waste of money. Do we, have we started to consider ourselves better than them and perhaps make them feel vaguely guilty for enjoying something that isn't very productive or isn't very efficient? That's just one example. I'm sure we can think of other things that we might be tempted to look down on each other for, yet that attitude of moral superiority is completely out of step with the gospel, as we've already seen. And the point is this, if God is getting the glory, if the good creator is receiving the thanks he deserves, then that's the goal of life. That's what all this is for. So praise God. My time's up. No. Um, so does that mean... I'm going to keep going. Does that mean we can do whatever we like? That there are no rules, no limits? That if we just say thank you to God afterwards, we can do whatever we want? We can indulge any desire we please? Or no? Because the goodness of gospel living also entails order. We've already seen how Paul is very keen that the order of uh, God, the order of creation, is revealed uh, and re-established and restored in the church, in the household of God. And we can see why as we think back to the mystery of godliness we saw last week. I said last week I'd say more about the first line or two of verse 16. Look at those again. Uh, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit. Just to help us reflect on those verses, think back to creation with me, and let's indulge in a little thought experiment. God has created a good and perfect world, It's an abundant world full of generous provision, and he's given it all to a man and a woman, and they have thrown it back in God's face, rejected him, denied him, tried to usurp him, believed Satan's lies rather than enjoy the good world that he has made. Now, if you were God, a terrifying thought, but let's go with it. If you were God, what would you have done at that point? I think I'd be strongly tempted to say, well, that was a disaster. Destroy the whole lot and start again. Plus, I might have been tempted to reconfigure things so that humankind wasn't in charge anymore. Clearly, that was a mistake. We tried that. But obviously, that is not what God has done. God does not make mistakes. He made a world which was by design very good. The order he baked into creation, including the place of humanity as the pinnacle and rulers of creation, is very good. So what does he do? He doesn't destroy creation. He doesn't radically change the order of it. No, after patiently setting the scene for many thousands of years, he steps into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? Jesus appears in a body. He lives as a man, as the man that mankind was always meant to be. And when he rose from the dead, he rose as a man, vindicated by the Spirit, God put his stamp of approval on Jesus' life, lived in full humanity, lived perfectly within the order of creation that God has put into his world, that is there for our good and there for our flourishing. And so Jesus' incarnation as a man, his resurrection as a man, reaffirms God's commitment to the created order. It is very good and it remains very good, but we must see that it is God's good order. 
He defines what is right and wrong in this world. See, the false teachers in Ephesus were attempting to redefine that order. That's always the effect of false teaching. Sometimes it results in the legalism we see here, where God says something is good and the false teachers say it's bad. Sometimes it results in the opposite, in licentiousness. God says some use of his created order is bad, and false teachers say it's good. Either way, the result is that man tried to make themselves God. But the gospel says God was made man. Jesus, who appeared in a body, always lived in in line with the created order, always lived with the grain of creation. So as he defines godliness for us, he patterns that order for his people to follow. He turns us away from trying to define good and evil for ourselves, which results in misery, and turns us back with humble thanks to God to allow him to define for us how to use the things of earth for our goods and for his glory. And so that finally brings us to holiness. Verse 5 tells us the reason why nothing in this world is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Why, verse 5? because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? Well, the word consecrated means to be made holy. There's a real irony here, just in passing. The false teachers may have been telling people to imitate the holiness of the old covenant priests by forbidding marriage and food. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Marriage and food, indeed everything in creation, the whole thing can be holy. It can be consecrated. But to understand this, we need to understand what holiness is. If something's holy, it means it's devoted to God. It is set apart for God's use. It's something that can be used to please God and worship him and bring him glory. This, incidentally, is why under the old covenant, some foods were restricted and the priests had to abstain from certain things at certain times. It wasn't because those things were bad but that the people and the priests were holy. They were devoted to God. And under the old covenant, this was the particular way God called them to demonstrate their devotion to him in contrast with the other nations around them. But here, Paul says, everything can be holy. Do you see that? Every created thing can be devoted to God. That is used to worship and please and serve him. How is that possible? Verse 5, it's possible through the word of God and prayer. And really, this is, I think, a summary of everything we've already seen. It's about order, and it's about thankfulness. The Word of God defines how we use the things of earth. He tells us what things are, what they are for, how to use them within the good order of creation. And prayer humbly receives those things and that instruction with glad and thankful hearts. And so if we are using the things of earth within the order of creation, defined by the Word of God and we're doing so giving thanks to God with prayer, then whatever we're doing, and I mean that, literally whatever you are doing, you are worshipping and serving and pleasing the Lord. Do you see how liberating this teaching is? This opens up every part of creation, every area of our lives, every situation we find ourselves in to be an arena of God's glory, to be an occasion for worship. Under the Old Covenant, there was a real separation of the holy and the common. The priests were holy, the temple was holy, the altar was holy, and that was where the action was. That was where the worship was happening, if you like. 
And most religions have that dynamic built in somewhere, that there is this separation of the world into the religious and the secular. That here, in this special building with these special rituals performed by these special men, this is where God is worshipped. And the rest of our life, our families, work, leisure, isn't really that important. In fact, it's usually slightly negative. Because that's where we accumulate all the dirt and sin and worldliness that has to be washed off when we get back to the temple or the cathedral or the mosque or whatever. And so we develop a suspicion of the secular world. We try to spend as little time there as possible. We withdraw and try to make every part of our life holy, by which we mean sort of religious in some ill-defined way. The gospel says a great big no to all of that. Instead, it reorients every part of our life to the worship of God. The mystery of godliness is enacted in ordinary things, in relationships, in food, in work, in leisure, in sleep, in all things, as we bring everything under God's order and receive all his good gifts with thankfulness. And that opens up a whole wide range of ways to please God, just as there are a whole plethora of different trees to enjoy in the Garden of Eden. You can live a life holy and worshipful and pleasing to God in almost any job, in almost any life situation, with almost any set of interests and hobbies. Now, I say almost, because there are going to be things that fall well outside of God's order for creation. No amount of prayer will consecrate being an adulterer or an armed robber. But within the scope of God's good order, we have a tremendous amount of freedom to creatively find ways to serve and worship God with thanksgiving. Let's take that example of marriage. The false teachers here forbade marriage. They said that marriage was bad, and Paul is going to have none of that. Marriage, family, childbearing, these are all wonderful, good gifts of God to be celebrated and honoured. And in this context, Paul needs to stress that. But in another context, in places like 1 Corinthians 7, Paul extols the goodness of singleness. After all, Jesus was single, Paul was single, and singleness can be holy. There's a world of difference, you see, between someone who says that marriage is bad and you must be single otherwise and chaste, otherwise you and God will be out of step. Between that and someone who chooses to be single or who simply is single because marriage hasn't happened for them and remains thankful for God and determined to use their singleness for God's glory. The first one might look more holy because it's all about rules and religion and self-denial, but the second really is holy because it listens to the word of God, receives everything as a gift with thanks, devotes itself to God. It is an act of worship. And we could repeat that with a thousand examples. We have the freedom to creatively think about how we can use the situation we're in, the gifts we're given, our personalities, our time of life, the particular season of life that we're in, perhaps, to glorify God by living within the order of creation with thanksgiving in our hearts. If you want to think a bit more about that, we recommend this book, Good Life in the Last Days by Mikey Lynch. Very, very helpful discussion on this topic. The point is this, that all of life can be a joyful, glad response to the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation of sinners by a good and generous God. Well, as we conclude, let's consider what life might look like for the church who listens to this teaching. We've already thought about what a church under the influence of false teaching might look like. Divided, quarreling, insular, joyless. What would a church who takes the gospel to heart look like? 
be a church with a lot of joy, wouldn't it? Not glib happiness, not pretending life is all hunky-dory, but a church full of humble gratitude. A church where the things of earth are enjoyed as an extra bonus gifts on top of the already abundant, generous, and gracious salvation. It would be, I think, a united church. A church where different gifts, different life situations, different interests and hobbies, different decisions wouldn't be an occasion to divide and quarrel and look down on each other, but would be an occasion to praise God that holiness is possible in all these different situations. It would be a church where God was thanked and glorified and praised a lot. We'd expect to hear a lot of singing. We'd expect to overhear a lot of thankful prayers being offered. And it would be a church that was very, very eager to protect the gospel. Do you see that? Because this gospel is so good, and God is so good, and Jesus is so good, that we would be so sad if the message was distorted, especially if the gospel of Jesus was made to look like bad news. And so it would be a church on mission, wouldn't it? A church that wanted others to enter the joy of God's salvation. A church that wanted to share the goodness and generosity of the gospel offer with as many people as possible. In other words, it would be a church that was living out to its fullest the noble call of being the pillar and foundation of the truth. I want to say at the end of this talk, I'm so glad that I do belong to a church that I think is like this in many ways. We're not perfect. We're going to get lots of things wrong, aren't we? And we need God's help to change and grow. We'll pray about that in a moment. But I'm very grateful for you, my church family, who helped me see the goodness of gospel living. And if you are a visitor today, if you're, you're not used to go to church, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're here. I hope you'll see something of the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel reflected in the way we live. I hope you want to find out more about God, our Saviour. If that is you, do stick around and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to, uh, to introduce you to Jesus and to this way of life that we uh, partake in. But for now, let's pause and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the gracious goodness of the gospel. How we thank you that even though we are the worst of sinners, those who have rejected you and rebelled against you and continue to sin against you, that you have nonetheless come down in the person of Jesus Christ, that uh, Jesus has generously showered on us his grace, forgiven us, adopted us, redeemed us, given us hope for the new creation, brought us into your family. And we thank you on top of that for the goodness of your creation. Thank you for all the things we see around us in this room that we can be thankful for, for for warmth, for dryness, for Bibles printed on paper, for clothes, for food, for drink, for friendship, for all the things too numerous to mention that you shower on us. Father, forgive us for when we've been thankless and joyless. We know sometimes that life in this world is very, very hard and we acknowledge our suffering and our struggles. But help us, Father, to be thankful even amidst those suffering and struggles, thankful for the gospel, thankful for your creation. And may we be a church that 
responds to the gospel with glad joy. May we be people who are seeking to make every part of our life an occasion for worship as we think about how to use your good gifts in the order of creation with thanksgiving in our hearts. And may that be a powerful, attractive thing to those who are not yet Christians, who we know and love, who are with us today. Please would um, the way we live adorn the doctrine of the Lord Jesus? Uh, would, it, would it show people the joy and the gladness of the mystery of godliness? Or would it encourage people to investigate Jesus for themselves, uh, to find uh, their joy, the joy of your salvation in him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to take a couple of minutes before the children come back in. Do you feel free to uh, go over your notes, look at the passage again, pray, perhaps chat to the people next to you about what we've been learning. And in a moment, we'll sing.